It's episode 86 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I'm Steve Garshinsky, and with me are J.P. Breen and Ryan Topp, who is excited about Tiger. And Liverpool. Tiger and Liverpool. Yeah. And the Brewers. Let me tell you, if this was your podcast and that's what you're going to talk about this week, I would unsubscribe. <laughs> Man, well, you you basically unsubscribe from our own podcast, so that's not a high bar. When you guys are talking before we start recording, you can see my eyes unsubscribe when, <laughs> when you're that's, yammering That's on. why... Man, that's why even on the Minor League Extra podcast, sometimes we throw in a few extra things for you just for fun. I do listen just for myself on there. I want to hear it's, references to myself. That It's a purely an ego thing. Yes, because we generally will take the opportunity to insult you. At some point. So I do listen for that. And it's always uh, good to hear because we have another Minor League podcast coming up, right? Yes, there will be one this week. This week? JP, you got things to talk about? I heard Corey Ray's 0 for 20 so far. Corey Ray's having a having a tough go of it, but I would imagine that we'll have some good things to talk about. David Fry hitting the base hitting the baseball really hard, which I know Steve is exactly what you'll listen to the podcast for. But no, we'll talk about uh, Tyrone Tyrone Taylor. We'll talk about Adrian Hauser's good start to the season. We'll talk about some of the the arms down in the lower level starting to to put together some good things and just kind of do an overall update. It'll be it'll be good. Yeah, so that'd be good stuff. If you want, join our Patreon, patreon.com slash tailgate. You can join and get that when it comes out. You can help fans find the podcast by rating and reviewing Milwaukee's Tailgate on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We want listener questions, so follow Milwaukee's Tailgate on Twitter at tailgate. Email questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our Facebook page. You can also follow the three of us. Three of us. There are three of us. And you can follow us on Twitter, and you'll find that in our uh, Twitter bio for MKE Tailgate. Uh, and finally, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash MKE Tailgate. Our M&B and Ball and Glove patrons receive the monthly Minor League Extra podcast. Milwaukee's Tailgate is sponsored by Carbon 4 Brewing and their English-style malt bombs and perfectly balanced hop grenades. You know them for the great beers like Dragon Flute Block Party and their flagship Fantasy Factory IPA. Right now, you can go out and get Radicats New England IPA and Fruit Punch Fantasy Factory, which is made with mango, pineapple, and blackberry. Carbon 4 has re-released the boozy, hoppy, and incredibly drinkable Idiot Farm, so pick that one up as well. Also, get 20% off of merch in the Carbon 4 web store with the promo code MKETailgate. As always, check out Carbon4.com for more information. Carbon 4, beer, brilliance. Hey, Steve, what are you drinking right now? Uh, I have a Tokyo sauna. Yeah, it's quite good. Which is I... also one that's a seasonal release. Yeah. And it's in season at the moment. So that's how we got that it. That is a one to pick up because it's out there right now. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so, anyways, we'll get into actual baseball discussion here now that Ryan's done with his little tap dance. Right? Hey, got to support the sponsor, Steve. Exactly. So, the week started out uh, a little rocky. Brewers go out to Anaheim and they get swept by the Angels. Yeah, it was weird and unfortunate. Well, and, and what was interesting about it is you had kind of the flip side of some of the wins they had earlier in the first week and a half or whatever it was, where they had some high scoring games. You know, the young pitchers gave up some runs, but they were able to eke out the wins where this time Woodruff had a you know tough start and they just weren't able to put enough runs on the board. Yeah. And especially the offense wasn't very good for two of those games. One of them, everybody was hitting and it was just, you know an offensive bonanza, but two of those games, the offense was pretty silent and you sort of expect that on the West coast a little bit, a team that's so built around the home run, like the brewers are that when you go to those parks where it's harder to hit home runs, that can be a negative. And 
it was in Anaheim. It was not so far in L.A. So yeah, we're in for the Dodgers. J- JP, what were your thoughts of the Anaheim series? What did you hear? Because obviously with how late those games are, they're a little rough to uh, catch up on. It's catching up on after the fact. Bro, I'm a graduate student. My hours are awful. I definitely saw those games. Um, and I, in general, it was, yeah, it, it was the exact opposite of a lot of things in the Red Series, right? Like in the Red Series, you had Orlando Arcee getting his first hit, three-run homer at the exact right time they were able to win that game by one. A lot of games in, against the Angels, it was, it was like they put a couple of guys on. They weren't able to to you know get one to squeak through. Where the the Angels were getting a few that were able to squeak through, right? So it was. I don't want to say like everything was down to batting average on balls in play because that's a little bit simplistic. But I think it does mask a little bit what um, we kind of take for granted when the when the Brewers win. Do you just do to a well-timed hit due to you know uh, a bunch of one-run wins where it's the bullpen kind of carrying carrying everything through right like those things are expected we see them as normal when guys do something well we see that and we're like yeah exactly that's exactly what you're supposed to do you know you come through at a big time and they weren't really able to do that against the angels in key moments and those are seen as failures they stick out a little bit more and obviously we know um early in the year we kind of don't have anything to do other than go by the very very last thing that we've seen um so there were a lot of comments about the bullpen the young starters uh, a lot of the struggles about you know whether or not they should go and sign kimbrell and and all of like the normal things that you start hearing when uh, the team doesn't pitch well for a couple days in a row so it was it was a little bit frustrating um but overall they i know that we haven't gotten there yet but they bounced back well they did. You know, obviously they got to L.A. and they were able to string together a couple wins. They had an 8-5 to five win, um, so they had to slug that one out, and then they had the 4-1 to one win on Saturday. Um, and again, Zach Davies looks like he's this year's Wade Miley or this year's Yuli Chassin. I mean, sure. I Well, I was just saying Wade Miley since they don't have Wade Miley, and he's kind of slotting into that position of the guy who pitches with, you know, deception and location. Yeah, and that really is what it is. And it was really funny to watch him operate with Yasmani Grandal and have Grandal stealing all those strikes. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay. I mean, it is. I mean, Grandal does a good job of getting strikes on, on, you know, the edges of the zone. There were some bad calls in that game. There were some bad calls like, just generally, too. Those, those weren't Grandal was able to just frame something and, you know, make sure that it was called a strike. It was like, well, that was clearly a ball and the umpire just like rung it up i forget who it was it's like muncie or somebody got struck out on a ball like that where mm-hmm. it was way off the plate so uh, let let's not say yasmani grandal is making every pitch look like it's a strike that's but he, he's helping on a lot of those to help make a a bad pitch look marginal again the, i think the you're, call you're, looking, a, you're looking you're looking at a very pitch look good you're looking at a very small sample size and saying yasmani grandal is having this massive hey. impact so jim I guess first, what are your impressions of Zach Davies? Because he's traditionally been a slow starter, and he's gotten off to a, a pretty solid start at this point. Yeah, well, to to the point about pitch framing, um, man, that was a narrative that everybody wanted to be true so badly. Like that's just something that everybody was looking for. Every every catcher does that to some to some extent. It's hard to tell whether or not 
you know, that's the the catcher actually framing it. So they're kind of stealing strikes whatsoever or, or whatever you want to say. It's hard to know whether or not, you know, the umpire is just calling a wide zone on any any given time. Um, people are, I think, looking for a lot of causation there. And a lot of people are also, you know, kind of then making comments about how people were making too much about his postseason. And, you know, we should have known that he was good. And again, his postseason was never about his pitch framing. That's not all that defense is. And we have seen him actually give a bunch of like, I think, two or three pass balls already. Um, so it's it's a little bit more complicated than that. But I think that everybody desperately wants Grandall to give some kind of secret advantage in pitch framing. So every time something gets close, they screenshot it, put it up. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Like this man. It's not a secret advantage. He's well known as one of the best pitch framers in baseball. I know. And it's but year you want it to year. be the. Be- no, no, no. You want it to be this thing in which like the team went out and got this guy that everybody wasn't taking advantage of. And that's how the pitching is going to be better. I mean, it does help, but they had good pitch framing before. So like that's not like a huge upgrade over what both Eric Kratz and Manny Pena are well. Above okay, hold on a second. Pitch framing. If, if all they needed was a pitch framer, they didn't need Yasmani Grandal. No, what he's doing is so, much more about what he's doing with the bat, which is amazing. He's so again, let's let's relax on the fact that, you know, but it his was pitch it framing's was, been what you'd expect it to be, hopefully. And, and it was and part again, of the success. Jim was, but as but, Jim pointed out, he's also had his issues behind the plate. He's not great at blocking the ball all the time and keeping that, the ball and, in front of him. Absolutely. And also, also, how do you know that he was actually pitch framing it well and it wasn't just the, the ump some having ump, a wide zone that day? Yeah, some ump suck. And that zone was wide on Saturday. It, it was a wide zone. It All of those factors played into it. But, uh, but Grandal, you to, can see him. He does a very good job on the edges of the zone. You can see him. You can see <laughs> He does a good You're job watching of keeping the game. still. I'm watching him pitch frame. Yes. Sure. Okay. It's right there. You act like that's something that people can't see. I, I, I'm sure many of our listeners right now are going, yes. I would love I, to I see, see you break this. I would love frame. to see you break this down. You could see quiet hands, him keeping the ball on the edge of the zone. Like Jim, how do you think Ryan's uh, view of pitch framing goes? Do you think he's watching as the ball is coming in? Or do you think he just waits for the umpire to call a ball or strike and then judges what the pitch framing is? Because I'm guessing uh, it's the latter. I'm, I'm Honestly, I don't know. Um, because Ryan but, doesn't know what he's talking about. I think it's, I think to me, I, in watching Grandal, um, he seems to be a good pitch framer, but it doesn't really seem all that different than what Eric's, Eric Kratz was doing last year. Um, to be frank. Well, Kratz was also elite. Like you looked at both of them. They were both really very high up in the list of, in terms of pitch framing and so, elite pitch yeah. framers don't necessarily make major league rosters so that's interesting um so but anyways. to answer the question about uh zach davies i think it's very positive to see what he's been able to do thus far i think it's a little bit smoke and mirrors um yeah i'd be a little bit worried just because he's not really missing all that many bats um he's still kind of nibbling at the zone a little bit where he he can give up some some walks um, thus far, basically it's just been the fact that he's gotten a bunch of gra- he's gotten a bunch of double plays without a really high ground ball rate. And his left on base percentage is about 90%, which it ain't going to be there all year. Well, um, I, okay. Here's the thing about Davey. So he gets a lot of soft contact. So I, I haven't looked back at it, but the idea that he gets soft contact that, you know, guys roll into double plays isn't crazy. 
No, but the fact that he has a career average left on base percentage about uh, 72, 73% and is up about 90% means he's not going to strand the type of runners that he's been able to do thus far. Now, with that said, we shouldn't project just, out 18 innings as a full slate of games. Well, you I think you should. I don't think I should. Um, no, uh, no, of course not. But oh, with all of that said, I wanted to be able to get all that out there so I didn't forget any of it. Okay. Now with that said, um, he's got a one five three ERA thus far, meaning if he does have some quote unquote rege- uh, regression in terms of how many runs he's giving in, he's got plenty of room to still be a pretty good pitcher and still uh, kind of regress in that way. And the one thing that I will say, as somebody who picked him last year uh, in the prop bets to have the lowest uh, ERA, I'm very happy to see him uh, come on back. I did not take him this year, Steve. I think that was you. I picked it in the the show. You did, yes, yeah. you did. Did you oh, change did it? You uh, not... Did you change it in the in the form? I'd have to go back but... and check. You are oh, such okay. a cheater. I was going to say that. I was going to say that was that was a pretty big caveat right there to mention that you picked it in. The well, show. I also have an alternate pick. I have an alternate name that I picked under as well in there. Oh, did oh, you? Nice. Yeah, you could you could find it. Oh, I think I know what it is. You could find it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I know what it is too. So but what? So I think the most interesting thing thus far for me when uh, looking at Zach Davies that makes me a little bit worried outside of just kind of the, you know, the ball and play numbers um, and kind of left on base numbers. His velocity, it, like it. Yes, it's early. Um, his velocity's down a lot, like. Uh, over almost two almost two miles an hour um, from last year and he's not a hard throw in the first place he's not really throwing his cutter at all he's not really throwing his curveball at all it's almost purely fastball change up his change up is about 30 percent this year um, but he's gonna have to really work on the margins of his fastball is gonna be about 88 miles an hour this year I mean he's really a funhouse mirror version of what Brandon Woodruff is doing this year, whose peripherals all look impeccable. He is striking out a ton of batters. He's not walking anybody. He's not giving up home runs. And yet his ERA sits at six and Davies sits at 153. And if you were to show the peripherals of the two guys, you would guess it was the other way around. You would guess that Davies was the one who had the six ERA and that Woodruff had it the other way around, which shows some of the limitations of peripherals, especially over small samples. But also you're just looking at Brandon Woodruff has been ridiculously unlucky. And if any of the the three young starters, we could talk about they've all had issues. Well, I mean, you're saying unlucky. Woodruff has had the big inning bite him. Right. So, I I mean, you know, it just seems like when things happen, they tend to pile up at the same time. Yeah, he really has. And some of that is, to be fair, you're right. It's not all luck. Some of that is he is, when he gets into tough spots, he's not making the big pitches. Whereas Davies has made big pitches and has gotten out of a number of tough spots. We saw it again and again on Saturday night against the Dodgers. Whereas Woodruff, it's like as soon as he gets into trouble at all, things kind of spiral out of control. And that's something that a lot of pitchers who are trying to still establish themselves, they do go through that. That's something we saw with Jimmy Nelson had those kind of issues for a long time. It's something that guys have to like figure out and figure out a way to just get around it. And it's part of the reason why counting on young pitchers as heavily as they are can be a little bit frightening even if you look at it and they're all pitching their peripherals all support that they're they're doing okay other than Corbin Burns home run rate which we'll so, talk about well t- uh, two really quick things on 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 that part I, I apologize just because I want to I want to ask Ryan a question about that um 
when you say you know Zach Davies is making the the big pitches, Woodruff is not. Is that something that you see as a skill, or is that just something that you see as um kind of an explainer for what has happened in the past? It's a little bit of both. It's probably more an explainer for what we're seeing because I don't know how much of a repeatable skill it actually is. It's more of what we're we're seeing it happen. And so Davies has done it in the the spots that we're talking about, whereas Woodruff has not. Would I necessarily expect it to I mean, continue? like this is one of know. the cases where Davies on a three two count got a ball that was clearly out of the zone called strike. He had, he definitely had helped too. Oh yeah. But I'm just saying, you know, when you're like, well, how do you explain this? I'm like, well, you have a limited number of innings and you get a few calls like that, obviously it's going to get you out of but trouble. But that's it's not the only thing. He he did a really good well, job of inducing double plays he does. in that game on Saturday especially. Like it was, you know, he he was doing a good job of inducing weak contact when he had runners on whereas Woodruff whenever he has runners on, he seems to induce, you know, hard contact. And some well, of hey, that is people have it's been cataloged on Twitter. People are talking about it that when he's gotten in trouble, his pitches have tended to go to the middle of the zone. Like he will get himself in trouble and all of a sudden he's just like pounding the center of the zone and guys have not missed. I, I mean, it's a little bit of that. Uh, JP, do you think Woodruff is just trying to strike his way out of some bad situations and he's just not able to command some of those pitches as well as he needs to? Uh, no, not for me. Um, the, my biggest p- trouble when I'm I'm having these sorts of conversations is number one, yes, it is a small a, a small sample size, but number two, I think we have a really big problem in terms of fans who follow one team very very carefully, um, and want to have the most optimistic view of, of what's happening is seeing everything that happens and and ascribing um, a meaning to it. And just because somebody made big pitches in some, that doesn't, he made uh, a, a couple of really great pitches to be able to get a couple of, of uh, double plays against the Dodgers. And that's wonderful. That doesn't mean, necessarily mean anything for the long term, right? Quote unquote. But I think for, and I'm not saying that you're saying that like it has long term meaning, but I, I the, your your comments about like, you know, you do think that making a big pitch is is a skill. I like wouldn't even really know how to quantify that. I wouldn't even know what that means other than like, like what is it is a is an o is a like is a first pitch in a uh, an at bat with runners in scoring position a big pitch time or is it just like when it's a uh, full count or is it just when somebody who is at the plate puts the ball in play suddenly that was the the time that you had to make a big pitch like I don't I, I guess I'm not really sure what it means it's way too subjective that's that's the thing is it is a subjective analysis and it does come down to what you're seeing in a given moment and it it has the weaknesses of that sort of analysis that's totally fair okay so I, since Ryan's so, not actually talking about something I do want to move on I, because I, I want to can, can I bring up a, a thing on Woodruff unless you're going to get back to it later no okay finish on Woodruff because I want to move yeah. to Burns um, I think the biggest thing with Woodruff to, to pay attention to thus far is he is just being fastball slider thus far through the f- first time through the order. Uh, he's been impeccable. He's given up zero runs. He has give he has a 15.19 ERA second time through the, through the order right now. Now, that does not mean he's starting to walk more people. He's still striking guys out, but they are making uh, 
better contact. That doesn't necessarily mean anything thus far, just because it like it's what twenty seven batters he's faced, so you know, not that big of a deal thus far. Um, but that is one thing to watch when we have been talking about him making a transition to the to the the starting rotation. He needs to start throwing his change up more. He's got a decent one, um, but we're going to need to see it. And we've seen him do it in the past. I'm not saying he cannot be a good pitcher second time through the order just this far thus far this year. He has not been while first time through the order. He's been very, very good. Yeah. Okay. So Corbin Burns, uh, obviously he's given up a lot of home runs, but the guy's got a 13 over 13 strikeouts per nine inning rate right now. Uh, JP, how much of this is, is bad luck for Burns? Um, I think some of it is, I think one of the biggest problems that I've had with Corbin Burns right now is he's not, he needs to either pitch high in the zone or low in the zone. Uh, he needs to pick one. And right now what I, a lot of people are saying that he's catching the middle of the, of the plate. I don't think that that matters all that much. The problem is even when he's missing in on the plate, he's missing on the outside part of the plate. What he's doing is he's missing belt high and he needs to either, he either needs to pitch high in the zone, which is going to help when he's got a, uh, his, fastball has the kind of spin rate that it has pitch high in the zone or pitch low in the zone if you're going to take your slider bury it or try to get it on the outside corner you cannot live at in the middle of the zone because guys especially in an era in which the ball is juiced you are not going to be able to get by all the time there so for me i'm not worried about him missing in the fat part of the zone i'm missing it i'm he needs to work high in the zone, low in the zone, make a decision on what he's going to do there. Yeah, Some Ryan, of this is just like guys are not missing when he throws a, a meatball. They're tattooing it. And well, that's, that's why they're they're meatballs, because guys tattoo it if you leave it in the middle of the zone. But that's not, that is not a, a hard and fast rule. Guys miss meatballs all the time. You see it constantly. I'm, in a, I'm, in a, I'm also going to tell you they've missed a bunch of meatballs as well. Okay, fair enough. So, Ryan, uh, Council says he's sticking with Burns despite the struggles. How long of a leash do you think they need to have on all these guys? I mean, I said this on Twitter earlier this week. I mean, I would rather see Burns get sent to AAA than put in the bullpen at this point. It, it, you have. I, has stick. there been any talk of moving any of these guys to the bullpen? No, no, no. I'm just saying they're people. Because I'm asking how long's the leash on them as a starting well, it pitcher. Did, it came up where Council was asked, "Are you going to stick with him?" And he I, said, well, "Yes, he's going to start the next game." I'm not. So I'm not asking that. How long's the leash for him as a starting pitcher? I don't care what they do if they make a decision bullpen or or minor leagues. Just how long do they stick with them? I mean, it needs to be for a good long while. It needs to be into well into the summer and. To completely give up on him as a starter, I can't even see that it being a thing you'd want to do this year at all. Regardless of what the outcomes are, you'd want to at least kick that can down the road till next year. You may, if you get into a, a pennant race situation down the stretch, and he is still having the kinds of issues he's having where he's good and missing a ton of bats early, because he's also having that second, third time through the order problem as well, uh, that you're going to want to potentially move him to the bullpen for the purposes of this season. But even that, I can't see doing that before August. Like you're not you're not gonna make those kinds of decisions anytime in the first half, I wouldn't think. If he needs to if he needs to not be in the big league rotation because he's just not getting it done, triple A is where you send him. It's not about putting him in the bullpen. Yeah. JP, who do you have more confidence in? Uh Corbin Burns or Freddie Peralta 
you know, Peralta's had the ability to go out there and and pitch a gem, but he's he'll also go up there and you know give up six in the first and make it really difficult for the team to come back. Yeah, I still think I have I have more confidence in in Burns long term. Um, as far as how much leash I think they should get, I think all three of uh, Woodruff. Burns and Peralta deserve as much leash as possible until Jimmy Nelson comes back. Once Jimmy Nelson comes back, if he's ready, then you make a decision on maybe who's pitching the best at that point. And they end up like either probably getting sent to, to AAA. Um, I think because at that point, if you've got a better pitcher on the way up, it doesn't matter how much you want to commit to somebody going forward. You're going to have to make a decision. Yeah, that's totally fair to me. Okay. Um, we did get some offense in this series out West. Uh, Yasmani Grandal turned into quite the world beater. Yeah, he is really hitting the ball hard, and yeah. especially as soon as he got to the Dodgers. It well, was... it's funny because, you know, it was a quote-unquote slow start for him in a week and a half, mm-hmm. you know, of baseball. And now all of a sudden we're seeing, like, yeah, this guy's uh, a pretty good hitter. So Yelich continues to hit. Moustakas is hit with power and Grandal. Um, have really carried the offense. Uh, you know, is this well? And Grandall got moved up on Saturday to clean up. Was he batting fourth? I don't know. Was he? F- I think fourth? he switched with Shaw. Okay, I'd have to go back yeah. and look at exactly in the lineup. So I think he he batted fourth and Shaw batted seventh. Yes. So um, is that a lineup configuration you think we'll see more often? I mean, as things are going, yes. Is it something that we're going to see long term? I think Council's perfectly uh, happy to move guys around, sort of based on who's hitting and who's not, who's locked in, and you know, I, I don't think that there needs to be a a set batting order for this team. This is a more settled starting lineup than it was last year, where there were more guys rotating in and out, especially early last year, where you had all the outfielders that you were trying to get in and and move around. But even so you're going to see guys move up and down the batting order based on how they're hitting. And I don't think that's a problem. I know it offends some people who want to see a set batting order, but I think moving guys up and down makes perfect sense. Well, the one guy set in the order is Orlando Arcia, and he continues to hit, you know, a home run or more a week. (laughs) JP, uh, is this going to be enough if this is the Orlando Arcia we get? Kind of a guy who doesn't do much, but when he does, he pops one? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, yeah, absolutely. If this is going to be what he is all year and give a shout out to uh, Steven Anderson, who let us know that he uh, pulled the ball before the podcast. Yes. Before we recorded the podcast. So we had something good to talk about in terms of Orlando RC pulling the ball for a homer. Um, yeah, no, that was that was good. I think if if Orlando RC hits 220, but can hit, you know, 15 homers, 20 homers, if if it gets to that point, because as we've seen across the league, uh there are a lot of home runs available this year. <laughs> and so um, if he if he can touch 20, then, yeah, you can live with that all day, especially with the rest of this lineup. He's also walking a little bit more than he has in the past. I mean, you're looking at right now a 222 batting average, but a 286 on base percentage. So if he walks just a little bit more. How many had, walks is that in 10 games? It is four walks. He's going wa- to walk more often when the, you got the pitcher right behind him. That also does help, but he's always hit right in front of the pitcher. He's basically been an eight hitter anytime he's been in the lineup his entire career. By the way, he wasn't walking that much last year. So we we did get a Patreon question from Aaron uh, Savage. 
I think I'm pronouncing that correct, asking that is correct. if uh, home runs are up for the entire league or if it just seems that way. I actually have uh, the numbers on this. I was going to say, Aaron Savage, by the way, childhood next-door neighbor. He and I played baseball together growing up. So, you yes, you did, you did pronounce it correctly. It's Aaron Savage. <laughs> we don't have to ask Twitter and wait for the uh, reply a day or two no, later. No, we don't have to ask Twitter and then be told that uh, you were right and I was wrong. There we no, go. We don't have to wait for I that. do enjoy that, though. Yeah, I know. It's so the home runs in the league in general are up a little bit again this year. Uh, I don't have the numbers for like the raw totals because you'd have to compare partial seasons to full seasons. But looking at the home run per fly ball rate, it's 14.2% right now. And that's higher than last year's 12.7, 13.7 and 17, 12.8 before that. It's a very high number. So there are more home runs being hit. It's It's up, but it's not like crazy it's not crazy up but there was a little bit of a backtrack last year with the home run numbers the home runs had been escalating since basically the all-star break in 2015 when the ball did change and last year saw a little bit of a, a slide backwards and it seems like we're headed back upwards again which really functionally for baseball it's the only thing that's driving offense in the game right now because otherwise walks are down Strikeouts are up, batting average is down. Like everything basically is trending towards pitchers other than home runs. So home runs are the only thing keeping run scoring going and like keeping people interested in the game offensively. So that's kind of, I think, not to be too conspiratorial about it, but I mean, MLB isn't going to change this if it's keeping things in something of a balance that people will tolerate what as far if this as offensive is all, baseball. What if this is all just because of Corbin Burns? It's actually the same as last <laughs> year, but Corbin Burns is giving up so many home runs that it's actually inflated the home run percentage. Nine home runs in 15 innings out of a total Look, of... What, what, what do we have for total innings right now? It's, it's I'm saying what, what actually is inflating the home run uh, the home run total is Chris Davis hitting absolute bombs for Oakland. The, the, the real favorite, crush Cody Davis. Bellinger, yeah. too. Oh. My favorite thing thus far, Chris Davis, 10 homers. His ISO is 441. His batting <laughs> average on balls in play is 186. Because when you hit homers, that doesn't count as a ball in play, man. That's why you're hitting, <laughs> that's why you're hitting 265. Jesus. An ISO over 400. That's absolutely. And he, he plays in Oakland. Like, this isn't, he's not playing in like Cincinnati bandbox or whatever. It's. It's it's unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Jay. Jay has sent us a thing that Corbin Burns, in his entire minor league career, allowed 11 homers. And he has nine so far at 15 innings. That is bonkers. I will say Chris Davis, uh, our Chris Davis, not the Chris Davis that uh, finally broke his hitless streak and then asked for the baseball, which was one of my favorite things that he asked for the baseball. You know what? Own um, it. Own it. Absolutely. I, I, you know what? And, that uh, was really cool that but, he did that. Jay was really mad because he had money on the game. And he, had, nice. he had the under. <laughs> Oops. Nice. Uh, but but Chris Davis last year had an ISO over 300. Dude that's hits huge. home runs. That's, I mean, that's what he does. That's huge. Um, Sean Aguilar, they're kind of, I don't know, on, on the edge of starting to hit. Aguilar finally had an extra base hit on Saturday. Yeah, Shaw hit the ball hard a little bit, but got a little bit lucky also with a misplay at first. Um, it, neither looks particularly locked in at the plate, but that's also a perception thing. So, JP, how do we keep in mind that like 
you know, we're not even two weeks through into the season? Uh, I think it's important to realize that that Travis Shaw at the beginning of spring training was absolutely crushing the baseball for a yeah. long period of time. And we were talking about how good he was and how good he looked and how good he felt. And guys will go through ups and downs. Um, the one thing that I, I, I noted about Aguilar is when he did hit that double, how relieved he was. Like even running to first base, he was absolutely really, you could tell it was weighing on him. So it'll be interesting to see if he starts kind of turning it on a little bit now that he feels like, um, you know, he's kind of broken the seal, but it's, it's always something that, you know, we talk about guys pressing a lot and we talked about it with Jonathan scope last year. You know, was he pressing too much? Was he trying too much to, to kind of put, uh, you know, a good performance in for his new team who was trying to brought him in for the postseason run. But Aguilar, you could tell. I don't think you could actually tell. Let me put it that way. I don't think you could actually tell that he was pressing as hard as he was until he hit that that double and how he reacted to it. And that what you could you could see that there was a weight off of his shoulder. So I'm I'm hoping that he's able to turn it around a little bit and. I think it also helps for him a little bit that that Eric Thames hasn't necessarily performed all that well thus far. He's hit some homers, but he's still striking out a whole lot. Yeah, again, early in the season. Last year, we don't have anything really to compare it against because Aguilar didn't start getting playing time until late April. Yeah, mid to late April once Thames was hurt. So uh, we have a Patreon question from Darren Jones um, uh, asking about the uh, innings usage for Peralta, Burns, and Woodruff. Um, Craig Council was asked about that earlier this week, and he said that if these guys are just, if they just let them go for the entire season, the team is worried or at least mindful about how many innings they're going to pitch. So how do you think the team manages the innings for these guys? And of course, we have Jimmy Nelson coming back, so there's going to be some movement as far as who's making starts. I would assume we'll see DL stints for all of them, depending on, you know, what they can come up with as a an excuse because you do have to have something of a valid excuse to put a guy in the DL. It can't be complete fiction. But then again, most pitchers have something nagging going on at some points. Corbin Burns goes on the DL from taking a beating from so many home runs. Yeah, it's, just like it's neck whiplash. It's the IL. Get it. Oh, that's IL. right. The IL. You're the one that made the mistake first. I am the first one to make the mistake. Got to get got to get the IL in when you can. I think what you'll also see them do is when they have an opportunity with an off day, they might skip a start here and there for everybody. Uh, I think that's probably going to be the more innocuous way that they do it. I wouldn't be surprised if they end up uh, whoever they end up sending to AAA. I assume it'll be they send somebody to AAA when Jimmy Nelson is ready to come back, barring an injury. Uh, I don't think that's moving somebody to the bullpen. If they do move into the bullpen, then that causes a lot of you know. Um, or that eases a lot of problems in terms of limited innings. But my guess would be whoever they send down to AAA might skip a start, too. Um, we have a question from Devin Bearwolf. He asks, uh, do you think the Brewers made a mistake in not trying harder to retain Derek Johnson or going out to find a more established, bigger-name pitching coach? It's way, way too early. We would need to hear inside stuff as to what's going on between the pitchers and the coaching staff to really say anything about that. We would need to hear people saying things like they weren't getting along or they didn't connect and they, you know, we would need to have that play out over a much longer period of time before we could say anything like that. This is just super early 
to draw any conclusions about stuff like that. Well, not everybody's been terrible either. No, not everybody's been terrible at all. So you also have that. My answer is no. <laughs> I knew that could be a very short answer for everyone involved. Um, but yeah, we'll just again, we're just hitting the middle of April. Yep. We are just hitting the middle of April. There is a long way to go and making any kind of, you know, grand declarations at this point is going to be. What I, and what also I will it, say, though, what I will say, Red's pitching staff is uh, fifth best in baseball with a 276 ERA thus far. They are. They haven't been scoring like people thought they would. No, yeah, they're, well, they've also had injuries in the lineup that have... That'll turn around. Uh, their strikeout rate and walk rate is almost identical to the Brewers. Uh, it turns out they just haven't really given up very many home runs. And knowing the Reds, that'll change. Yeah, that <laughs> the park they play in helps that a lot, especially when it's at all not terrible out. Yeah, so uh, Adam Post has a Patreon question. Uh, going back to Jesus Aguilar, um, obviously he got the double on, on Saturday, finally broke the seal on that. Uh, but is there any explanation for his power outage so far this season, especially since we just talked about home runs being up? There's 14.2% fly balls or leaving the park, and 0% of them are Jesus Aguilar. Guys go through ups and downs like this all the time, especially power-wise. And for a guy whose game offensively is so based on hitting for power, it's not like he's slapping the ball around a bunch. Uh, you would just expect that you're going to see times like this. Now, right now, you would probably want to get Eric Thames in there, and they did. I think he got in the starting lineup a few times so far on the West Coast trip. But you're definitely not giving up on him yet. So you just keep running him out there and, and see what happens. JP, what what is a good prediction for Aguilar's power potential this season, because obviously he had a big year last year, but what, yeah. what what's realistic? And I think we kind of went over it coming into the season, but just go over it again. What's kind of a realistic power uh, base as far as what we can kind of hope for Aguilar? I think 25, 30 home runs is reasonable. Uh, absolutely. I mean, he hit 35 homers last year in about 550 plate appearances. And the one thing I would, I will say that he's done this year that's been very positive is he's not striking out all that much. He's still taking some walks and, and it's early. Um, but I think he, he just kind of hasn't had, he's been a little bit off, uh, in general, um, anecdotally. And I'd have to look at this as just as kind of like a feeling I've had from watching him. He's been a little bit, I, it feels like guys have just been constantly working him with sliders away and he's really struggling with it. Um, but I don't know. I'd have to look at it. Uh, but I did look to see which MLB player, because I was gonna, I was gonna try to like bring in some stat cast stuff and be like, his, his exit velocity is really crappy, and that's why he hasn't done well. But you know, I I wasn't able to look it up that quickly. But I can tell you, the player that has the highest average exit velocity on the season, who qualify with uh with a minimum uh number of batting events. Who do you think it is? It's a Brewer. Uh, it's got to be Moustakis. Steve, what's your guess? What was it? Exit velocity? At highest average exit velocity with the minimum number of qualified batting events. I feel like that that's the key to this, isn't it? I got to pick somebody who who isn't getting a ton of at-bats. 
No, they've got to have enough. Otherwise, they don't qualify. No, no, no. Yeah, I get that. But oh, you, you well, yeah. I was gonna pick Yelich. I got Jay over here trying to give me the answer. I was gonna pick Yelich. I figured he was the guy, but I don't know if that's for sure. It's not. It's Yasmani Grandal at about ninety-nine miles per hour. Uh, I think it had been Yelich, though, wasn't it? Yelich is 95.5. Because he got off to such a hot start, I think Yelich had been up there is what I saw. Yeah, he could have been up there thus far. I think uh, Yasmani Grandal's uh, last five games has really helped him move that up extremely quickly. What's your view of Grandal? Because obviously we're seeing a pretty hot streak for him right now. But, I mean, you know, traditionally he's a 240 hitter. So Mm -hmm. are we going to see some pretty large peaks and valleys with him? I think so, and I think we actually already have. I think he was not good for the first week, wasn't he? Didn't he only have like one or two hits? Yeah. Yeah, he was way down early. He did not come out of the gate strong. But he always backs up what he's doing, you know, in terms of having a low batting average with a lot of walks. Oh, I thought you were going to say pitch framing. Yeah. (laughs) No, I mean, (laughs) he starts starts walking across. He walks across the plate, catches it, and says strike. I mean, he's he's very much a three true outcomes hitter. You know, he will strike out, but he's also going to take a bunch of walks, and he's going to hit the ball hard. So that's been his profile forever. Are you trying to say that his 433 batting average at balls in play is not sustainable? It seems unlikely. It seems unlikely. No, he's been, but his at-bats have been really good lately, too. Yeah, I mean, he's clearly seeing the ball well. I don't know if it's just a matter of being back in L.A. and he wants to, you know, perform well against a fan base that, uh, I mean, I don't. Hey, they gave him a standing ovation first thing on Friday night. Yeah, and then they booed him since. And then they booed him since. Well, but you know what? That first one matters when they're willing to welcome him back, especially since he signed as a free agent elsewhere. That that generally doesn't go well. I suppose. But at the same time, I do feel like he was unfairly scapegoated a lot during the postseason sure um also before we move on i wanted to jump back real quick you did mention that jesus aguilar is still taking walks and not striking out a lot it's really really remarkable i didn't realize he only has nine strikeouts in 53 plate appearances and has eight walks that's way better than what we've seen from him in the past and if so if you're looking for something positive to hang your hat on for jesus aguilar going forward it's not the quality of his at-bats that are degrading here. He's he's still doing some good things. It's a question of him getting the pitches to hit to drive for power. And I think that it doesn't look like he's, he's running into problems himself. So that's at least something positive going forward. Okay, so we have a question from Darren Jones on Patreon. Uh, so far this season, the Brewers have attempted to bunt against the shift on three occasions. Grandall and Shaw did so unsuccessfully versus the Reds and Moustakis successfully, in quotes, by reaching out an error against the Dodgers. Do you think this is something the Brewers are actually putting an emphasis on with their lefty hitters? No, I think that they're just allowing it to be an option if they want to pursue it. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense to me than actually pushing it. I think it's something that they're open to, but not pushing. I mean, what do you do with power hitters like that as far as giving them the green light on that? Is is there any way that they can say, like, we should take advantage of this? Or is it just that's not a thing that hitters are used to, and that's why nobody in baseball really does it that much? Yeah, I mean, you would think with all the shifting that's been happening for the past half decade decade that more guys would have adopted it and it would be just a simple way for guys to get on base and they'd practice it more and they'd do it 
but it really hasn't happened anywhere. Like nobody's really taken that as a a massive strategy. No, to try who does to get it? It seems like uh, what's his name down in Chicago or somebody like that will do that on occasion. Anthony Rizzo. Yeah, Rizzo. He does it a little bit, but not a ton. I mean, we're still. It sticks out though because when it happens, it I hate it so much. Well, yeah, that's I mean, what it is. Chicago Cup doing a thing, so like there's just this burning passion that I have when he does it. I'm like, you so, son of a bitch. What one thing for me I think is interesting about it, especially because he because Darren brings up uh, the Grand Doll unsuccessful um, attempt that to bunt for a hit is Grandall actually got one down um but he, it highlighted like actually it's not just about getting it down anywhere on the left side of the diamond uh you do have to still place it because if you get it too close to the pitcher they can actually still go over and get it and throw you out and then basically you just threw away in at bat so it isn't all that easy i would imagine and it i would imagine they uh pursue it a little bit more when they're facing somebody that they're having a hard time against. Now, the reason I st- I stuttered when I said that was because I just recognized they did it a couple of times against the Reds. But uh, <laughs> I would I still think that you'll see it more against guys like you know if Max Scherzer's there and you end up like shifting against it. Like yeah, maybe you bunt for a hit against him because you just need to get somebody on base. Um, I also do wonder if they are willing to pursue it more against pitchers who struggle. Uh, pitching out of the stretch to try to manufacture that early guy on first base to force somebody to pitch out of the stretch and not be able to pitch from the windup all that much. That's just an idea um, that came across my head. So I don't have any analysis behind it or like data, but I wouldn't be surprised if you had some numbers to show somebody struggles pitching from the stretch that you just try to get somebody on base no matter what. And I also think it, it has to do a lot with when you're talking about the, the matchups, particularly lefty, lefty, righty, righty. You know, if you're doing it against Clayton Kershaw or somebody like that, it would make more sense in those sorts of situations than. Well, and it tends to be lefties where there's the extreme shift. Yeah, though, I mean, we're seeing it with righties, though, that first baseman always does kind of have to stay sort of home to first base. They can't get too far afield Though we've seen Jesus on some of those shifts. We've seen him getting closer to second than he is to first at times. And they'll only do it when there's a particularly slow runner, but you've seen him getting over there quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, so we have a question on Twitter from Fat Cat Aristocat. Aristocrat. Aristocrat. Aristocat. I mean, but it does say <laughs> no, Aristocat. You put, Aristo- so, Ar- you put yeah. Aristocat on here. It says, oh, it, it says, it that's says an Fat autocorrect. Cat Aristocat. That's an autocorrect. Wait, wait, wait. It autocorrected from the correct word to a Disney movie title? I think so, yes. You're a liar. I'm staying with that. <laughs> you are a liar. Okay. So anyways, yes. Uh, do you worry about the sustainability uh, when almost a quarter of Milwaukee's hits are home runs at this point? No, because that's just the direction the game's going in. And home runs are not a bad thing. I thought you were going to talk about the fact that we all predicted that this would probably be the team that hits the most home runs in Milwaukee Brewers team history. Well, and yeah, the the league environment is right for it, and this team is particularly built for it. And yeah, I think that they're going to at least get close. So yeah, but worrying about the sustainability of it, you're going to go through ups and downs, and it's going to seem like, when you're not hitting the home runs, well, there's no offense and everybody's going to get edgy about it and that's going to be the way things go. But people get the same way when a team that doesn't hit home runs 
isn't getting on base and isn't, you know, getting hits either. Like offense comes and goes that way. It, it goes up, it goes down. It's baseball. This is how this works. So JP, is it no. only sustainable if Orlando Arcia maintains a 20 home run pace? <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think echoing what Ryan said, like it, it is interesting how nobody worries about the sustainability of offensive production when it's teams that don't hit a lot of home runs and can't seem to get anybody in from first or second base because they ground into double plays or they can't quite get, you know, can't quite get something through the infield or anything like that. Like it does. Um, it it then feels like either bad luck or guys aren't really trying enough. It, it, it There aren't really conversations about sustainability. And in fact, I would argue that in today's baseball environment, in which strikeouts are up, batting average is down, all of the things that Ryan was talking about earlier, uh, the most sustainable form of offense is a home run. You don't have to worry about stringing three or four hits together. Right. Yeah. And especially in an environment where you're getting guys on via the walk, which is something that this team has worked on improving over the past few years. That was a big part of why Yelich and, and Kane were brought in was because they were actually getting get on base at the top of the lineup for the power hitters that were already there. Oh, and also, JP, what was your stat about uh, Chris Davis? Chris Davis hit what in terms of like his, his batting his average bat, on balls yeah, and play? His, or his, his batting average on balls and play was like 180. Exactly. You know, hit it over the wall and you don't got to worry about that variability. So um, should we move on? We want to do some bullpen talk. We need to because we got a guy coming back this week. I know that you wouldn't even consider this a podcast, Steve, if we didn't do some bullpen talk. We have to talk about the guys I hate the most. They're all a disappointment to me. It is like a religious fervor with you and the bullpens. It really is. You you have like, hold on a second. we We all have to fulfill a role on this podcast steve is to be a fantastic host with the best voice and then to hate the bullpen hold I on a second hate everyone i you know for years my what i hated most about the bullpen was the fact that they all pitched less than an inning at a time or they had very specific roles and the fact that yeah jay's with me on this the fact that someone like josh Hader is able to and and uh Junior, Junior Guerra, they're all they're able to go out and pitch more than an inning at a time. They make two plus inning appearances. I'm on board with that, and I have been for a long time. Yeah, no, I know because your whole line used to be that bullpens are carnies, like the bullpen pitchers are they, carnies. They you come know in what? with their one weird trick, and they just you know that's what loogies are. Like they're they're bearded ladies. It's it's. <laughs> Well, they're going away, so that's that's no exactly. longer a thing. Yes. <laughs> Maybe the the loogies are going to be out of business, and no yeah, what's his name? The us, commissioner, uh, Rob Manfred. Manfred, yeah, Manfred hates the carnies. So, so I I do find it funny that uh, Steve is more open to relievers as they get better. As they become better pitchers, yeah. <laughs> when I I I'm on board with real pitchers, and I mean the thing about bullpen arms has always been that you couldn't count on them from year to year because what was a good year one year would be a bad year the next year, even though they didn't change that much. Because if you have one or two bad outings, you know, I you can be blow honest, up your ERA. I think part of what I hated most about relievers for all those years, especially when it got to be so specialized and. You know, I have my seventh inning guy, I have my eighth inning guy, I have my ninth inning guy, is that managers were so dumb. 
like in their usage. Like the, it had to be, I don't want to think about when to use a, a reliever. I don't want to think about what they're doing out there. You know, I just want to say it's their inning. And I just, you know, I put them out there because it's the eighth inning. It's the ninth inning. Brian Schaus in Philadelphia at the end of the 2008 season. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, yes. that stuff was ridiculous. And it's like, well, if you don't want to manage, if you're basically packing it in after six innings when you had to pull your starter, then what the hell's the point of a manager? Yeah, you know, it did. It, we bring up Yost in that context. It did kind of end with Yost, too, because it was when he decided during the 2014 playoff run, I think it was, he decided not to stick to bull, rigid bullpen rolls. Well, 15 is when they Kansas right, City but 14 won was they went to the seventh game and yeah. lost to Mad Bum just being Mad Bum. Uh, but it was he down the stretch that year had shown a lot of problems with bullpen flexibility and then he embraced it and then they went on the playoff run and it it felt like that was a watershed moment not just for him it was like a watershed moment in the game it took a couple years been more flexible since it took a couple years for i think teams to fully embrace it they still went out and like found those guys like they would go acquire an andrew miller or somebody like that to do it when they needed it i mean the andrew miller thing happens in 2016 so it yeah it, it happens shortly after that but it was but teams would go out and acquire an andrew miller where i think now teams are like bringing guys up in that mode like they want to use them more flexibly like that yes yeah um so anyways pj wessels on twitter asks uh claudio Guerra and hater look to be the quote a bullpen guys right now uh if jeffers comes back healthy and strong does he slot back into his fireman role or does he take over as a closer That's a really good question. I don't know. And I think that I could see either one happening and either one being a, a good use of him. I don't necessarily have a problem with saying Jeremy Jeffress is going to be the ninth inning guy in most cases. And that will allow Josh Hader to be used really flexibly and just attacking situations and throwing him out there for, you know, 35, 40 pitches at times, which sometimes can be like eight outs now on on Friday night, it only turned out to be four outs, but it, that's a good lineup that'll do that sometimes. So, but if they can continue to use him that way, I don't see a problem with necessarily saying, "Hey, Jeremy's just going to close out games for us." But I think I also like the idea of using him as a fireman. That that also is appealing. So I think we'll probably see some of both. I would imagine before they settle on one particular thing. Yeah, JP, uh, you know. Jeffers had most of his success last season as a fireman, not as their closer. Do they bring him back from an injury, you know, kind of working him back in and just say, resume that role? You know, here's all we're going to just throw you into high leverage situations at all times. I imagine they'll kind of ease him in a little bit in the middle innings or depending on how he looks. You know, maybe they do bring him into some high leverage spaces right away, but I, I don't actually foresee them bringing him in as a traditional closer. Um, I see him being more of a fireman, and sometimes that fireman role takes him to the ninth inning. Um, I think we've seen thus far when Hader is not available, they are willing to go to guys like Alex Wilson. You know, last last night or Saturday night, they they went to Junior Guerra for a couple of innings. Um, Maybe he pitches the seventh inning to to get to Josh Hader so he can go two innings to close out the game, right? Like there are a lot of scenarios in which you can use Jeremy Jeffress in the best position possible. The one thing that I think 
is beneficial about him, especially in a fireman role. And this will be it's the fact that he can go multiple uh, days in a row. Right. Unlike Josh Hader. And I know that some people were saying that maybe they're going to be a little bit more cautious with him. But I think it's notable that the first thing they did when he went to San Antonio is they pitched him on back to back days. Um, They want to make sure he's ready for that. And I think he's going to be brought in a fireman role. I think sometimes if Josh Hader needs to be used a little bit earlier because seventh and the eighth inning is like seventh inning is the top of the order and they want to be able to do it for two two innings to get to the bottom of the order and then they bring in Jeremy Jeffers for the ninth. That's fine. I don't think that makes him the, the closer per se. I think it just made things kind of work out. You're talking about easing him back in. I almost wonder, and this is totally counter to what we've all been taught for decades, could you ease him back in as a closer and see? Because that's a relatively low, in terms of leverage, it's generally a, a lo- relatively low leverage situation. No, I think you see Jer- Jeremy Jeffers come in on days that, uh, to start out, I think you see him come in on days that Josh Hader's not pitching. So he would be used, okay, eh, that makes in, sense. In whatever scenario makes sense for that day. And I do think it's worth noting that Junior Guerra might be the guy who is the Josh Hader when Josh Hader's not available, like we saw last night. Yeah, and he really was, and I think he is fairly well suited to that role. So Okay, if that's the case, how much money would they have to give Craig Kimbrell to get him to sign a one-year deal to be the closer on this team? I don't think... I, I think if that were going to happen, it would have already happened. Yeah, Kimbrell's still... The the latest rumor I saw, he was still looking for like three years. He still wants like uh, Wade Davis money, which was around 3 and 50 Yeah, he's probably shooting for $20 million a year. Yeah, I mean... and. He should in the sense that he has been probably, if you look at his numbers actually compared with Rivera's, he's comparable to Rivera. He just didn't do it for that second decade the way Rivera did it. He has one decade of doing it. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely intriguing. I just don't know how much they want to commit to him long term. I think if what JP is saying if he was going to take a one-year deal, I think he already would have done it. And maybe we're waiting at this point, as a lot of people have speculated, we're waiting for them to get past the I draft. I don't know. Hold on. If he was going to take a one-year deal, wouldn't it kind of make sense to wait until things have shaken out a little bit, get overpaid for a half a season on a winning team, like guaranteed winning team, and then hit the market again? I, I think. I think in general the idea that you're going to be able to that the next or like the, the next free agency is when I get paid. I, I can't imagine that guys are thinking that way anymore. I think they want to think that way, but I think the more realistic ones are not. I think, I think what Scott Boris is doing is he's showing, I think he is trying to establish a precedent. Um, this is my own on, this is uh, just completely reading between the lines, not informed by any opinion and very well could be wrong. I would not be surprised, I suppose, is a better way of saying it. If he's setting a precedent that basically says, if you don't give my guys what they want, they are not going to sign until after the draft. Do not get do not extend them. A qualifying offer because they will not sign. No, I think that's legit. I think, yeah, Boris is kind of staking his claim at this point. Yeah, I mean, well, that's true when it comes to Keuchel, but Boris doesn't represent uh, Kimberly. Yeah, you know. So, I mean, there's yeah, that too. So, 
Okay, so looking at the uh, schedule coming up, we got St. Louis at home and then the Dodgers again. So uh, the meat grinder continues. Yep, the hits just keep on coming. Speaking of which, are you going to the game on Tuesday? (laughs) (laughs) We could handle this off the air like professionals, but... we Yeah, we'll handle that off the air. Um, Yeah, but again, more St. Louis, more Los Angeles, and then more St. Louis after that, like after we talk next Sunday... It's just going to be like, hey, they're playing St. Louis again. Yeah, and it's nice to get, because we did this last year too. I think we had a lot of St. Louis early and then didn't have much St. Louis late. And this year, I I like that. I don't want any part of St. Louis late. I'm happy to get it out of the way, especially while they're winning. Yeah, so I mean, JP, what are your expectations when they continue to have to just grind through teams like this? Are the Mets just going to be a relief when they finally hit that part of the schedule at the end of the month? Yeah, is is Syndergaard and Wheeler and all of them going to be a relief? Um, no, I mean, like honestly, I I don't know. Um, and and while that sounds not interesting for a baseball podcast, um, if you would have told me at the beginning of this this uh, road trip that they would have gotten swept by the Angels and they would have taken two straight from the Dodgers, I would have like that doesn't that would have been like one of the last things I would have picked in terms of a likely outcome. Um, baseball's uh, baseball's so weird. I I think, and it's also really interesting that um, for how much we've been talking about kind of the polarization of baseball in terms of teams that are are quote unquote tanking, even though I don't like the term. Um, but teams that are are rebuilding versus teams that are quote unquote going for it in the NL right now. You've got so many teams that are good, and you've got so many teams that can really do some damage over over a series that there aren't going to be very many breaks. And in some ways it makes like almost every game feel important, which I guess is, is, is good. And like kind of breeds excitement, but at the same time, it's kind of exhausting. It is. So you don't don't have have that team in the division that you get to fatten up on, which is so rare. I mean, that's really not normal. No, I well, mean but, it is. They have it, to get to June when they get Miami and in San Francisco. In but it. like, I just, I just need a couple of series where I can just like, be. Like, I'm just not gonna pay attention for this. But I mean, like they did go to Cincinnati and sweep them. So even when it's not necessarily a, a soft team, when you're good, you can go and and beat teams that are not necessarily bad teams and do good things against them. Hell, even when you're bad you can go and beat good teams because it's right. baseball that that doesn't mean it that yes all of that is true that's not what i'm saying i'm saying the way that like talking about the series and looking ahead it just feels exhausting to look at the teams that are lining up and then you're like oh god now now it's going to be scherzer and then it's going to be flarity and then it right like now we've got <laughs> the dodgers and then you're like okay god got through that meat grinder what's next the cardinals oh Oh great! What's after that? Maybe I can look forward to that. Oh, Dodgers. Dodgers again? Not only the Dodgers. Yeah. Four games against the Dodgers. Four games against the Dodgers, and we're going to get to see uh, Kershaw, Kershaw be because he's pitching on Monday. So I would assume that then means he's going to pitch on Saturday. So does that mean it's next level managing, and you bring up Tyrone Taylor to hit a homer against him, like you did down in AAA? <laughs> yes, that is exactly what you do. That is that is how you do that. But I, it's I will say like it's really interesting because like if this were August and September and like these big teams and big series and like, you know, your rivals for like 
the the NL Central and the Cardinals and all of it. We'd be circling it. We'd be all in it, and we'd be like watching every single minute, every single been like living and dying with every single game. But in in April, you're like, come on, man. I'm just like the season's just starting. I don't need this yet. It is funny because looking at September, they have Chicago, they have the Cubs early in the month. They have them in the first week of the month, and then it's Miami. They do have a St. Louis series, but then San Diego, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Colorado. Like I mean, they could be battling Colorado for a wild card spot. They could be. Colorado might be a little soft this year too. We'll see. But I'm just saying, looking at who they have right at the end of that schedule, Colorado's been bad, man. Right, they're not scoring, which that's been part of the deal. Colorado, everybody looks at that team and they go, well, they're always going to score because they're Colorado and they play in Coors. But they were led by their pitching last year and their hitting has not drastically improved. Well, again, we're two weeks into the season. Yeah, but you can start to kind of see, like, they have a lot of weaknesses in the lineup. They don't have a lot of outside of... I was going to say, it also matters that, like, Daniel Murphy's injured. Uh, Ryan Ryan man's out right like it's not like they don't they don't have reasons why they're not scoring as much as they could sure yeah so yeah the point being there is we have a lot of drama early in April and it's not going to be quite the same way in September so hopefully that'll lead to another run if they they need it at the end of the season we can because it's going to be hard to fatten the thing is if they fatten up now if they can get some wins now against these teams they should be in pretty good position well remember when i i gave my win by win predictions you guys got on me for where are all these wins coming from in the nl central because the nl is so good and i was like well there's interleague they're playing the al west and of course the brewers go out and get swept yeah, get in swept. their first interleague series of the year so you know what the hell do i know like yeah so okay well it'll be good to get them back playing at a, a normal time that even during the weekday people can watch yeah <laughs> say so, when the game's like starting far, like right now basically the early part of the season feels a lot like you know the third matrix when it's like a battle for three hours and you're like <laughs> dude I cannot handle it for this long. And not and I thought you were gonna and, say it, and, it feels like a sweaty, dirty rave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was like also like the movie was bad, but like the the overarching feeling in it I was like, there is such a thing as battle fatigue when watching a movie. Like I can't sustain my attention to care for that long. Um and it feels that way really early in the baseball season where I'm just like, I need I need a few days of break. <laughs> And like maybe that just means I should not pay attention or like watch a game for like a week, but you know. Yeah, I mean we had off days, no off days this week. Yeah. So just go straight through. Yeah, this is gonna be the grind. So, anyways, we're gonna wrap the show up for this week. Uh remember you can join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash MKE Tailgate. Patrons at the M and B and Ball and Glove levels receive the monthly minor league extra podcast, and that should be out later this week. As always, follow us on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. You can also submit questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or through our Facebook page for Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Pocket Casts, wherever you listen to your podcast, you can find us. So uh, remember to leave reviews and help people find the podcast. We want reviews, good reviews. Or, you know what? Please insult Steve. But, five, but five, five stars and a Steve insult. Five stars, and then you can write whatever you want. So go on to iTunes or whatever and leave us a review there. So thanks for listening, and look for us again next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate. <laughs>